podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Good boys and girls, two for the podcast on Thursday, the 2nd of December. We're brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider that's a virtual privacy network, which allows you to go online, change the location, and access whatever it is you're geoblocked from. So if you're a UK expat living abroad and wanting access to Sky Go, BBC iPlayer, or whatever it is, LibertyShield.com. Get yourself the VPN, set it to the UK, and watch away while keeping your data safe. Use the code EPL599 to get your first month for one quid. After that, it reverts to $6.99 a month, but one quid for the first month. No contract, so you can cancel at any time, and that offer will be good until the end of January. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk. And finally, do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops where you can use the code EPL10 and RED10 on Etsy to get 10% off. And those codes will be good until the end of May 2022. So can't do much better than that. Right, folks. Six games in the Premier League last night. Going to rattle through them as quickly as possible. We've got some listeners' questions today. A little bit of gossip. But I do want to have a bit of a chat about Everton. So, uh, we'll start off. Southampton 2, Leicester City 2. Good result for both. Leicester probably deserved the win. I thought they really came on late in the game. Alex McCarthy made a couple of big saves to keep Leicester, uh, to keep Southampton in the game. Now, I... Wasn't too impressed with him on either of the Leicester goals, but I did think late on he stood up big. Jan Bednarak had put Southampton one up after three minutes. Bit of a goal-mouth scramble, dropped to Bednarak, and he was able to force it over the line. Johnny Evans made it 1-1 on 22. McCarthy made a save, palmed it back into a very dangerous area. Evans completely unmarked was able to to tap home and make it one all. Che Adams with a great header on 34 minutes to put Southampton back in the lead. He was really busy in this game, made some very good runs, took up clever positions, caused the Leicester defence a lot of problems. Uh, was impressed with his performance. Into halftime, there was a delay in the game there was a medical emergency. Now, I haven't heard what's happened to the person in the stand who had the medical emergency, but fingers crossed they're okay. Second half starts, and four minutes in, James Madison makes it one, uh, makes it 2-2, continuing his good run of form. He was impressive last night. 
thought he caused a lot of problems for this at Hampton defence, picking up good positions. Rogers going back to 4-2-3-1, away from the back three, playing Madison as a 10, really did have its benefits. Luckman and Barnes out wide were busy. Samarian and Didi in midfield gave a good account of themselves up against Ward-Prowse and Romeo. Like I said, late in this game, Leicester had good chances, including Barnes, Madison and Vardy. Vardy probably the best chance of all to win the game for Leicester, but it wasn't to be. It is a draw. It's a point each. And I think it's a, it's a fairly solid point for both teams. For Leicester, it bumps them to eighth in the league. Now, they'll still be disappointed in that. They'll still look at that, and especially the five defeats, the negative goal differential, and know that they can do better. It's still just five points taken from the last 15 available. But they're starting to turn around a little bit, starting to look harder to beat, starting to look like they've got more belief in their system going forward. They're going to get players back soon. Pereira will be back. James Justin will be back. Fafana will be back. And then they're going to be a real threat. And Yuri Thielemans, of course, to come back as well. When Leicester have everybody fit, that's a hell of a first eleven. It's an outstanding first eleven that they can field. And hopefully by, you know, late January, maybe February, they'll have everybody everybody back and we'll see what they can do in the second half of the season. For Saints, they're 16th in the table. It's not ideal, but they are five points clear of Burnley. Burnley do have a game in hand. That's a bit of a concern. But at the same time, they're level on points with Leeds, with Everton, and only one point behind Villa, Crystal Palace, and Brentford. So they're right there in the mix to be sort of in the bottom in the bottom end of the mid-table, which is, I think, fine for Saints at this point. They didn't spend big in the summer. They lost things. They brought in Armstrong. They brought in Livermento. They brought in Brogia, obviously, on a, on a loan. But they didn't address some of their other needs. So Ralph Hasenhutl is having to patch things together a little bit. And he's doing an admirable job. Funny that they have exactly the same result, uh, the exactly the same record, rather, as Leeds uh, across the season. But remember, Saints started badly, looked like they could be relegation fodder, then had a good run. They've taken seven points from the last 15 available. So, you know, they're, they're doing okay. They're doing okay. I think they will be okay this season. I think there are three or maybe even four teams worse than them in the league this season. So, with a bit of luck... Saints will stay up. Uh, moving on then. Next game is Wolves nil, Burnley nil. This was uh, as much of a shellacking as a nil-nil can be. Wolves absolutely battered Burnley. And a combination of some poor finishing, some really good goalkeeping from Nick Pope, and Adama Traore deciding to try and break the crossbar kept Burnley in the game. It was a long way from Burnley's best. But this is the type of performance Wolves were putting in at the start of the season where they were playing well, just unable to score goals. Once they got out in transition, they are lethal. I thought they looked a little bit stodgy when Burnley were in a set defense. But in any kind of transition, we saw the pace and the threat that Wolves can carry. You'd like to see a little bit less selfishness in some of the attackers, 
But at the same time, if it had come off for one or two of them, Huang and Adama had good opportunities, then you know we'd be singing a different tune. For Burnley, it's just a solid point. You take every point you can get when you're in the position they're in. Third from bottom. Only one win all season. But Burnley are now five games without defeat. They've taken seven points from the last 15. One win and four draws. And they are starting to just churn through these games, pick up points, drag themselves out of the position that they found themselves in after another terrible start, just like last season. They're three points behind Watford with a game in hand. If they win that game in hand, they will go above Watford. They've got a better goal difference. You would say they're a better balanced team. They certainly have a better manager. I do think Burnley will find their way out of this. I don't see them going down this season. I think Dyche is too good. I think the team is too well drilled. January is going to be key for them, though, because they've got a big question over James Tarkovsky. I think they should sell him because I don't think a club like Burnley can afford to allow that valuable of an asset to leave for free. But at the same time, will that completely disrupt them? They could go and get a Joe Worrell, a Scott McKenna, both good defenders, both players Dyche has been keen on for a while. But Tarkovsky's their best centre-back. And he's a very good centre-back. So losing him could cause major issues for them. Uh, Wolves stay sixth. Eight points from the last 15 games. Their biggest issue is scoring goals. It's as clear as day to anybody. Defensively, they've been quite solid. They progress the ball well through midfield. They just don't score enough goals. Only 12 so far in their 14 games. It's a concern. Only two teams in the league have scored less. Tottenham, who've played two games less and have only scored one less. And Norwich, who had one of the worst starts to a Premier League season ever. Bruno Lage needs to get something clicking in attack. Like I say, they're really good in transition, but they look a bit stodgy against any kind of set defence. Neto would make a huge difference when he comes back, but we don't know when he's coming back. It's unlikely to be this side of the new year. And when he comes back, they're going to have to ease him in. You can't just expect him to come back and immediately be up to full speed. That's a very serious injury that he's had. And it may well take him four or five months from now to get to a level where he's ready to play any kind of real consistent minutes at a high level. And even then, he'll need to be managed carefully. That type of injury, if it is the torn patella tendon, that's a two-year injury. And I think he's only about eight months into his recovery, maybe nine. So he's got a long road ahead of him. If it's an ACL, it's a little bit more straightforward. But still, you're not going to want to rush him back and expect him to be at his best straight away. As long as they keep defending as well as they have and controlling games as well as they have, they should be fine. They should remain top half, mid-table, that kind of area. I don't think they'll finish sixth. But at the same time, 
if they could get Raul Jimenez sparked and scoring goals, it is possible. It is possible in this weird league that we have. It is very possible. Um, we'll jump then to Watford 1, Chelsea 2. Uh, this game also uh, interrupted in the first half for a medical emergency in the stands. And the last I heard, the person who was taken ill was in a stable condition. So fingers crossed, that's still the situation. They're going to make a full recovery. Uh, Mason Mount put Chelsea one up after 30 minutes. Decent finish after a bit of a scramble. The ball fell to him and he rifled home. Mount had created a couple of good chances for others in this game. I thought we saw the wasteful side of Chelsea in the first half in this game. Emmanuel Dennis, who recovered from an injury to play in this game, equalized on 44 after the stoppage, which I think was 25 minutes or something like that, that they stopped the game for. Um, Really poor defending from Antonio Rudiger. Really poor defending, but Dennis does well. He's having a very good season. And regardless of what happens at Watford, he will remain in the Premier League or at least in a top five league. He's a good player who has versatility, creativity, pace, power, decent finisher. He's everything you'd want in a squad player if you're a top Premier League club. I could see a top Premier League club looking at him and thinking he'd be a lovely option to have off the bench in games against lesser teams in the Cups and making a move for him. Obviously, Ishmael Asar is the star of the team, but he's out for a while, and more of the burden now will fall on on Dennis's shoulders. Uh, Hakim Zayic gave Chelsea the win with a brilliant finish on 72 minutes. Good cutback from Mount and a great finish by, um, by Zayic to give them the win. Chelsea, a little underwhelming again in this game. Saul started in midfield. He doesn't look himself. It's not his fault. He's barely played. But he's been badly managed this year. He's the one big criticism I have over Thomas Tuchel. Uh, I did find it interesting that Kai Havertz came back from injury and went straight into the team, while Romelu Lukaku, who's been back a couple of weeks now, is still on the bench. I thought that was interesting. I said last season, going into the summer, I didn't think Chelsea needed to buy a striker. Build around Kai Havertz as your false nine, and I think you'll be better off. I think they look better when he plays there. Now, last night wasn't a great example of this, but he did look like a fellow who'd missed a couple of weeks. But they've got to find a way to get Lukaku into this team. They paid nearly $100 million for him. What that is, I don't know. I don't know that you can play Lukaku, Havertz, and Mount together in the 3-4-2-1 shape that they play. I think you'd have to move away from that. Go to maybe a diamond midfield, which could suit them. If you go Jorginho in the deepest role, Kante and Mount as the engine, and then Havertz as the 10 behind Lukaku plus one. Alonso's not a great fullback. He is more of a wingback, so that could be an issue. But Reese James can play as a fullback, and when he returns from injury, Chilwell can play as a fullback. They don't really have the centre-backs to play that system, though. 
I mean, they own their centre backs are only really good in a three. None of them. Christensen can play in the back in, in a two-man defence, but Chalaba, Rudiger, Thiago Silva, Aspilicueta when he plays in the back three, they're only really back three centre backs at this point. None of them good enough in a two. They've got a couple of questions to answer, but they are top of the league. And that's the only thing they'll care about. Now, they've taken 11 points from the last 15. They did obviously drop points in two different games, but defensively, they've been great. Going forward, they've had moments where they've looked really good, but for the most part, it is a bit... It's a bit of a slog, and it can be a bit of a slog to watch them play. Um, for Watford, one win in the last five, three points from the last 15 available, was, of course, the, the shellacking of United. But things don't look good for them. Things don't look good for them at all. They've got a lot of injuries at the minute, and they didn't have a great squad to begin with. They've been weakened in midfield. Kuka came back last night. That was big. Um, but their centre-backs are awful. You struggle to... I mean, when when Danny Rose is playing regular minutes, you're, you've got a problem at this point. But you look at their bench last night, and it, it doesn't really inspire confidence. There's some good players... But at the end of the day, when you're playing Truce de Kong and Cathcart at centre-back, you're always going to have problems in the Premier League. Moving on, West Ham won, Brighton won. Thomas Suchek on five minutes with a header from a Benrama corner for Niles corner, I can't remember which. Um, good header, put West Ham one up. This was a good game of football, a really enjoyable game of football. And... I think the draw is a fair result. Brighton had a lot of their sterile possession, were wasteful of some really good chances. Adam Lallana missed a sitter. Mopay missed a good chance. But the way they matched West Ham in midfield, I was really impressed with. I thought Basuma and Moder really troubled Declan Rice and Suchek, running off the back of them constantly, pressing them, being aggressive, taking the ball off them as and when they wanted to. Uh, good to see a little bit of variation from Graham Potter with his shape going to a 4-2-3-1, bringing in young Sarmiento on the right wing. Thought he had a decent enough debut. Uh, he was replaced by Lamptey, and it was Lamptey who made the goal. Good run, good cross. Mopé's finish is outstanding, absolutely outstanding. If you haven't seen it, go and watch it. This is a great result for Brighton after a bad run of form. They've taken four points from 15. They still haven't won since mid-September in the Premier League. That's of a concern to, to Graham Potter and to those connected to the club. But they're still seventh in the league. And if you offered them seventh in the league after 14 games, you can be certain they would have taken it. For West Ham, it's another point drop. They're now three without a win. Seven points in the last 15. The gap between them and those below has shrunk to the point where if Arsenal win tonight, Arsenal will overtake them in the table. And that's not where West Ham had hoped to be when they beat Liverpool. 
they were looking at Wolves and this game and thinking that can be two wins. We'll try and get a draw against City, but those are two wins. They're now seven points behind Liverpool, who sit third and nine points off top. Did say it'd be a stretch for them to get top four. I still think they're absolutely a European contender this season, even with this bad run of form that they're currently on. But I think they're going to need a win soon. Just You've seen with this division, when a team gets into a little bit of a slide, it can be five, six games before they correct it. And with the way the division's bunched up, there's only six points between United in 10th and West Ham in 4th. And United do have a game in hand. Spurs are five points behind with two games in hand. Arsenal, like I said, a point behind only uh, and with a game in hand. So there is just a little bit of scope for them to slip a bit. But I think Moyes will get that sorted and turn things around. He's uh, he's done an outstanding job, obviously, since taking the reins. Um, Aston Villa won Manchester City two, a game of two halves, very much so. City dominated the first half, absolutely just did what they wanted with Aston Villa, had their way with them. Ruben Diaz opened the scoring on 27 minutes. Raheem Sterling with good work down the left. It's a cutback that Villa failed to deal with at all. Uh, Tyron Mings watching the ball rather than attacking the ball. Diaz's left foot, Sean. I don't know if it took a deflection or not. I've watched it five or six times. And I can't decide whether it takes a deflection or just has a weird hook on it. But um, it finds its way past Emmy Martinez and into the net. City counter-attack. Late in the first half, 43 minutes. Fernandinho finds Gabriel Jesus. Tyron Mings again. I mean, I don't know what the guy's doing, but he's in the city half. Esri Kahn's has left 2v1 in his own half. I've no idea what Mings was doing, but I do know that at one point he was marking Gabriel Jesus, and then he was 25 yards away from Gabriel Jesus. And jogging back towards goal, finally got a bit of a you know a giddy up and go, but far too late to make any sort of any sort of impression on the move. Great cross, the Bernardo Silva finish is absolutely sublime, a world class finish from a player who I think is approaching world class status. For me, he's been the second best player in the league this season after Salah. I just think he is sensational. And I still can't believe City were considering selling him in the summer. I've said all along, he's the one City player I would love to have at Liverpool. If you give me a choice of anybody in their squad, I'm taking him. Because I think he fits how Liverpool play the best. You put him in midfield with Fabinho and Thiago, it's game over for the rest of the league. Uh, I'd take Phil Foden as well. There's one or two others. Sterling, KDB for, for certain, but... Canseo when he's in this form. But Bernardo Silva is the one I would want. And I, I just can't believe that they were open to selling him. They were going to sell him because of Jack Grealish. And the gulf between him and Grealish is enormous. This is a legitimately top-end player. Jack Grealish is a haircut. Grealish was seen celebrating this goal on the bench. And when he realized there was a camera on him, he stopped, um, which was a bit odd. 
In the second half, Villa came out and were much improved. Much improved. They scored almost straight away. They got a corner. Douglas Louise to Ollie Watkins and a tidy finish. For those of you who are of a more mature vintage, uh, by, that, by that I just mean old, you'll remember the Darren Anderton to Teddy Sheringham corner that Spurs worked so well for a couple of years. This was that. This was that move. Really good run by Watkins. Well-placed corner by Douglas Louise. Villa players doing good jobs at screening defenders to stop them going with Watkins. Gave him the half yard of space. That's a great finish that Ederson can do nothing about. The second half was very even from there. Villa match City blow for blow and could have gotten a draw but a good chance late on. Ederson was required to make an outstanding save from Chuck Wemmick. An outstanding save. And um, I think it would have been a little unjust if Villa had gotten the result because I think City deserved the win. But at the same time, it showed good spirit. It showed that this team reacts to what Gerrard is asking from them. They looked a lot better with Louise and McGinn as the, as the eights and Nakamba as the holding six uh, than they have even with uh, Jalen Ramsey, who I do like. But they look better. Louise looked really good in that number six position. And this... this 4-3-3 that Gerard likes to use looks quite well balanced. They're still needing more from Emmy Buendia. They still need a lot more from Leon Bailey. But the balance looks pretty good. Matt Cash is improving so much as a defender. It's impressive to see that right side of the Villa defence, Cash and Konza, is so much better than the left side. So much better than the left side. And the final game then from last night, Everton won Liverpool 4. A shellacking for the Blues by their most hated rivals. And their fans took it very, very well. Uh, Liverpool went one up on nine minutes through Jordan Henderson. Probably should have been a couple up already by that point, but a really good goal from Henderson. Left-footed finish from the edge of the box after good work by Mane and Robertson. They went 2-0 up on 20. Mo Salah racing on to a Henderson through ball. Excuse me, a Henderson through ball. Um, getting 1v1 with Pickford and finishing with a plum into the far post. Everton did fight back because on 20, it looked like it was over. It looked like they were dead and buried and like this could become very embarrassing for them. Their fans started to leave uh, while making gestures at the Liverpool fan, the fans that were a little bit tasteless. Um, but they did fight back, and Damari Gray got them back in the game on 38 minutes. Great bit of work by Richarlison to set him free, and a solid finish past Allison. I, I thought Allison was expecting a harder shot, and I think Gray intended a harder shot, but it kind of squirmed underneath the goalkeeper and went in. And going into half time, as a Liverpool fan, with how some of the results have gone this season, I have to say I was a bit concerned. I was a bit concerned that they were going to throw this one away. But they came out in the second half. They regained control in midfield. Fabinho and Thiago just running the show. Henderson with acres of space, just galloping forward whenever he felt like it. 
And Liverpool got their third on 64. It's Salah again, pressuring Seamus Coleman on the halfway line, winning the ball back and racing through on goal. Coleman tried to get back at him, couldn't get close to the ball. Salah finishes again across the keeper, this this time from the inside left channel into the right-sided post. Really good finish again. Salah is currently the best player on the planet. And if you disagree, you're not watching enough football. Uh, And they made it four on 79. Diogo Jota, great control, great turn, and a brilliant finish past Pickford. Gave the keeper no chance. Liverpool were dominant. The 4-1 flatters Everton to an extent. They had about 15 minutes where they made a game of it. And that was about the height of, of their efforts. Their fans did not take the defeat well at all. They booed from before kickoff all the way through. They booed Van Dijk every time he touched the ball for, I don't know, daring to get injured by their hack of a goalkeeper last season. They booed their own players. They booed their manager. They booed their chairman. They hurled abuse at the manager and chairman. They hurled abuse at the director of football. And look, criticism is warranted. Abuse like that is never warranted. There were many, many meltdowns, fans trying to run onto the pitch, fans stealing the football when it was kicked into the crowd before hurling it back onto the pitch as Liverpool attacked to try and disrupt the game. Just bizarre, very disappointing behaviour. I understand that Everton right now is a club that has a lot of problems. I understand that their fans are not happy with things, but... I think they're aiming their distaste in the wrong ways, and I think they're going about their protesting in the wrong ways. Everton do need change. There's no doubt they need change. They need change from the top down, not from the bottom up. If you change the manager, you're still inviting a new manager into a situation where there's institutional failure. Bill Kenwright should not be involved with Everton Football Club anymore. Bill Kenwright is the architect of decades of failure at Everton Football Club. It is time to put Bill Kenwright out to pasture. And while he is in a position of major influence at the club, this club will go nowhere. Mishiri has put a ton of money into this club and has big plans for the club We've seen the the pictures and the videos of the stadium and what it's going to look like. And that's a real reason for Everton fans to be excited about the future if it ever materializes. But it's going on a long time now. And you have to ask the question of, is Mashiri himself incompetent or is he just a very naive man who doesn't fully understand the workings of a football club? Recently, I've been listening to a podcast called Football Uncovered by Sporf, and it's Nick Harris, Sporting Intelligence, and a couple of guys from Sporf, and it's really, really good. An excellent, excellent podcast that I highly recommend. Now, I've only listened to season one. There is a season two, but I'm not on to it yet. To give you an idea of what this is, it's basically looking at clubs who have had mental ownership situations charlatans in the director's box basically is what it is so in episode one they went over blackburn and the venkies ownership and all the chaos around the early years episode two was leeds 
And, you know, from the end of Ridsdale's tenureship as the, the chairman into the Ken Bates era, Salini, and into the current ownership, and just the chaos that, you know, engulfed the club for years. Episode three was Portsmouth. That's a must listen. You will be stunned at some of the tales in that Portsmouth podcast. I, you just, because it's so long ago now that it all kind of started, you forget just how insane the things that went on there were. Episode four is Liverpool and the Hicks and Gillette roller coaster. Episode five covers two teams, Aston Villa under Tony Jaa and Birmingham City under Carson Young and what a mentless Carson Young was. Episode six is Gretna and Hearts. Again, you've got to listen to this one. In particular, the Hearts part. The Gretna story is a little bit different. It's worth listening to. The podcast itself is great. Episode seven, they did QPR. The Briatore, Bernie Eccleston era, and then the Tony Fernandez era. And there's eight years of lunacy that the guys cover. And the episode eight, then the final episode of season one, it, it just focuses on FIFA and the level of corruption. And they go through a top 10 list of the most corrupt people involved in FIFA over the past 20 or so years. It will it will make your jaw drop at times. Um, I haven't gotten into season two yet, like I said, but the clubs that they cover are Leicester, Manchester City, Southampton, Everton. Uh, they do one on the future of football. They cover Arsenal, Manchester United, Chelsea, and Sunderland. So I'm looking forward to getting into these. Like I say, uh, Nick Harris, Will Brazier is the name of one of the guys from uh, Sporf. And you'll have to forgive me, I cannot remember the name of the second guy. Oh, Richard Johnson. I don't think he's on season two, but he's on all the season one episodes, and he's he's very good. Uh, Will and, and Richard, one is a Birmingham fan, one is a Blackburn fan. So, you know, they've got their own sides of fandom during the crazy ownership. Nick Harris is just tremendous value on all of these things and he's got some crazy tales to tell so do give that a listen but the two that struck that struck me as reminding me of Mishiri were Tony Fernandez at QPR very very naive and the Venkis at Blackburn far too trusting in the wrong people they got screwed a little bit by a couple of people listen to the podcast honestly when you finish with this one Go and look it up. Football Uncovered by Sporf. Episode one is Blackburn. Start there, run through them. They are brilliant. They're about 45 minutes to an hour each. They're great. Mashiri has put too much faith in Bill Kenwright and the existing structure that was at Everton before he took over. And for me, he needs to say goodbye to Kenwright, clear out the board, and appoint new people. A new CEO a new board, a new chairman of the board, and then work his way down. Marcel Brands has got to go. He came in with big expectations. He'd done a pretty good job at PSV Eindhoven. But he's been a disaster for Everton. Poor recruitment, poor choices of managers. He's on his third manager already. He arrived the same summer as Marco Silva. 
and he's on his third manager already. They need to bring in a new director of football, a new board and a new CEO. When you've done that, then you go and appoint a new manager because whatever manager you bring in now is going to fail. You could bring in whoever you want and they will struggle with Everton because the club is not well run because there's too many fingers in the pie and there's just there's institutional failure rampant throughout the club there is a, a a mentality of failure at Everton and until that's gone that club can't have success and you look at all the money they've spent under Roberto Martinez under Ronald Koeman under Sam Allardyce under Marco Silva, under Carlo Ancelotti, and not so much under Raf, only 1.7 million. He's the one that kind of got stiffed by the seven years of wasting money, wasting money from when Moyes left up until Rafa's appointment, especially once Mashiri took over. They've just thrown away good money after bad. And when you look at the decisions they've made in the transfer market alone, bad signings, and then doubling down on that with bad sales. If anybody can explain to me why Nikola Vlasic and Adamola Luckman were sold and not given real opportunities to play, I'd be very curious to hear it. Because I look at this Everton team as currently constructed and Nikola Vlasic is exactly the type of player they need in the number 10 position. With Richarlison one side and Damari Gray the other. And if you still had Luckman, he can play both sides as well. So you'd have good options there. But, you know, they spent $40 million on Gilfie Sigurdsson, $35 million on Alex Awobi, $30 million on Michael Keane. They spent big money on wages to bring in James Rodriguez. These are bad signings. They spent big money on Jordan Pickford, a goalkeeper who, despite having some shot-stopping ability and being decent with his feet, is a goalkeeper who, throughout his career, has conceded 50 and 60 goals per season. That's just who he is. There are some really talented players at Everton. I really like Godfrey. And I think you can build a defence around him. I really like Luca Dina. I think he's an excellent left-back, especially going forward. Defensively, he's not the best, but he's not bad. He's really good going forward. Great cross for the ball. I like Alain and Dekure. Now, Alain, age-wise, doesn't fit with the profile of building a team because he's kind of a win-now sort of player. But the pairing of him and Dekure is quite good. Vlasic as a 10 would have been ideal, but without him, they don't have a 10. So that's an issue. They do have Richarlison, they do have Calvert-Lewin, and I really like both of them, especially Calvert-Lewin, who is getting better and better now. They've missed him so much this season when he's been out. Once he's back, I think we'll see him make a massive difference. I like Damari Gray. He's always been talented. He'd never been consistent. He'd been very frustrating as a player. Benitez is getting more out of him than any other manager has. So you've got Godfrey, Digne, the two boys in midfield, the two boys up front, and Gray. 
That's half a team. Seven players, in fact. Over half a team. Nearly two-thirds of a team. Of a pretty good team as well. If you get yourself a good goalkeeper. Doesn't have to be great. Just a good goalkeeper who won't cost you games. Can help you play out from the back. And be an organiser. Get yourself a good right back. A Max Aarons type. To give you balance. You get a partner to go next to Godfrey. Because Yerry Mina could be great. But he just can never ever stay fit. And he does have a rick in him. He does have a mistake in him. Not all the time. But it, it happens. You do that. You've got a defensive base. You put the two in front. All of a sudden. You're very very solid at the back. And like, I'm not talking about bringing in a Van Dyke. I'm not talking about spending ludicrous money. But if Fakayo Tomore, for example, wanted to move back to England, he'd be a perfect signing. You put, you know, Mark Gwehi was available in the summer. And all the money they've wasted. If you put Gwehi next to Godfrey, that's a centre-back pairing you could build off. You could build that pairing into something really good over the next five, six years. You put Aaron's beside them. Again, it's a long-term signing. All of a sudden, Dini is the only one of your back four who's over the age of 23. Two in midfield. Richarlison off a wing or as, you know, behind the striker. Gray off a wing. You need one winger. You're three players short of having a good team. Four, sorry, four. Goalkeeper, right back, centre back. And one either wide player or ten, depending on what you want to do with Richarlison. But you'd be close to having something. Something you could work for. But none of it matters if you're going to buy the right the, the wrong players. And unfortunately, history suggests Everton will buy the wrong players. Or instead of buying a right-back and a centre-back, they'll buy two right-backs or two centre-backs. Or they'll stick with Pickford because he's England's number one and that apparently means something, despite the fact he's probably the fourth-best English goalkeeper. Maybe fifth-best. Sam Johnston might be better than him and he's not great. Ramsdale's not great, he's better than him. Henderson is better than him. Pope is better than him. Everton are a strange, strange club who time and again take one step forward and two steps back. Who time and again make rash decisions. Like, let's take, for example, the summer they bring in Brands and then Marco Silva. So Marco Silva had come to England and managed Hull and he'd done quite well, but couldn't keep them up. He gets appointed as Watford manager. And Watford start the season really well. Everton sack Ronald Koeman that season. And Marco Silva is who they want. So they make a big push for him, illegally. Completely de- derail what he's doing at Watford. They end up not getting him. They appoint Big Sam. Watford fall apart and he gets sacked. 
So rather than getting a manager, rather than waiting and saying, look, you know what? We get Koeman out, we'll bring in Big Sam, which is what they did anyway. And in the summer, we're going to make a big push on Marco Silva because he's the guy we want. But let's have him, let's see what he can do in a full year at Watford. And we'll get him in if he's good enough and he'll be full of confidence if he's had a good season at Watford. Instead, they get him in after he's been sacked and his confidence is rock bottom. But they get him. He's the guy they wanted and they get him. And they appoint a director of football and all is rosy. They've got a young tandem that they can look forward with and this is a long-term plan and Everton are going to be on the up. Lots of money to spend from Mishiri. They're on the up now. There's a decent squad there as well. Like, if you take a look at the Everton squad when um, when Silva took over, which was, I think, the start of 1819, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Was it 1819? It was. It was the start of the 1819 season. So the players they bring in, they bring in Richarlison, who Silva's worked with. They bring in Luca Dina. They bring in Yeri Mina. They bring in Andre Gomes and Kurt Zuma as um, squad players, as, as loanees, rather. And you look at the players that were there. You've got Mason Holgate, very talented young defender. You've got the experience of Leighton Baines and Phil Jagielka, plus Seamus Coleman. That's your leadership group. You don't really want them playing, but that's your leadership group. You've got Dominic Calvert-Lewin, a young striker on the up. Morgan Schneiderlin, admittedly it hadn't worked for him at United, but we'd seen him at Southampton be very good. He's he's clearly got something about himself. Young midfielder in Tom Davies, who's very promising. Young wide player in Luckman, who's very promising. You've got Gilfie Sigurdsson, who's not great, but he's a decent Premier League player. You've got Idrissa Ganagay, who's a very good midfielder. There's there's something to work with there, something to build with. And when you're adding in these new players, you know, there's something to be excited about. So you finish eighth. And all in all, you're fairly happy with how that first season under Marco Silva has gone. There's been a tough run in the middle of the season from December through to mid-February. They were awful. But at the end of the season, they really did turn things around. They won five of the last eight games and only one defeat. So you felt good about, if you're an Everton fan, about where they were going, what the direction was, this young manager, and the promise of more money to spend. So they go out in that summer, they bring in Andre Gomes, who they'd had on loan, and they spend big on him. They bring in Fabian Delph in a move that still makes no sense. Jean-Philippe Gabamon, very highly rated midfielder coming from Mines, young player with big potential, spend big on him. Spend massive money on Moise Keane, near 30 million, the most promising young Italian number nine, someone that Juventus had really put a lot of faith in. And you were looking at him thinking, right, okay, that's, you know, him, Calvert-Lewin, Richarlison, there's something to go with there. You spend big money on Gibraltar, on on um, Alex Awobi. That's a, that's a mistake. You spend thirty four million on him. That's a mistake. Decent player, good player. Not a not a fraction of that money though. Half that money would have been fine. 
Uh, and they bring in Gibral Sidibe, who was the French first choice right back at the Euros in 2016, and was a good player. He'd been part of that Monaco team that won the French League. He was a good player. They bring him in, and he's a disaster for them. And the season starts badly. There's no doubt the season starts badly. And rather than allowing Silva the opportunity to try and work his way through it, to try and ride things out, they sack him after they get hammered in the derby by a Liverpool team that would go on and win the league that season, by the way. Not not a bad team. A team that would go on and win the league. There had been some terrible results. It's worth saying. They lost to Villa, who barely stayed up. They lost to Bournemouth, who went down. Lost to Sheffield United in their first season up. Lost to City. Yeah, that's going to happen. They lost at Burnley. That happens. They lost at Brighton. Again, it's not a bad result. They lost to a Norwich team that went down. So they've lost to the three teams that went down that season. Or two of the three teams that went down that season. And one who barely stayed up. They lost to Leicester, who probably should have, well, who definitely should have got top four that season. And they got hammered by Liverpool. They were 17th or 8th. They were 18th in the league. So things were going badly. There's no question things were going badly. But rather than have a bit of faith in the manager to turn things around, rather than giving it a bit of time, they panic. And after all they went through to get Silva, including paying quite a big fine for tampering, they just sack him. Less than 18 months in the job. Out, gone. No opportunity for a long-term plan because it's away from him and the long-term planning and a young manager with new ideas and a young, well, a, a getting younger squad and an aim to build a young team. And they pivot completely and go for Carlo Ancelotti, who was a great manager at Milan, at Chelsea, at Real Madrid the first time, at a PSG. Bayern had gone badly for him. Napoli went badly for him. He was definitely not the right manager to bring in at that point. He's also not a manager who's ever had success rebuilding. He's not a manager you appoint to a mid-table team who comes in and turns things around. He's not that guy. Carlo's the guy you bring in if you're finishing second or third and are one or two tweaks away from real success. If you know you've got the group of players, but it's just a couple of fundamental flaws, that's where you bring in Carlo. As we've seen this season at Real Madrid, that's what Carlo's great at. Carlo's not the guy to bring in when you're in mid-table in the league. He took a team over when they were, I believe... I believe they were 16th when he took over 15th, maybe. They finished 12th. They never got higher than 9th. And that was a fleeting uh, trip to the top half of the table. So he takes them 15th to, to 12th. They go out in the summer and they spend a lot of money to bring in a lot of players. They bring in Alain for $22 million. They get Hammers on uh, quote-unquote free, but spend massive wages. 
They bring in Dukure for 20 million. They bring in Godfrey for 20 million. They bring in Robin Olsen on a free. Niels Nkunku, who I do like, good young left back on a free. But Alan, Hamez, and to an extent Dukure are not long term pieces. Alan and Hamez are around 30. Dukure is 27, pushing 28. He'll be 29 come January. Ben Godfrey is the only long-term, well, him and Nkunku, the only long-term signings that are made there. They're the only two that fit with what was allegedly the mandate when you appointed Silva of building an exciting young team. They let go of a lot of players. They sell a couple of good young players. They go all in on Carlo. They loan out Moise Keane, which, you know, they'd spend 30 million bringing him in rather than giving him a real opportunity, they send him on his way. And then Carlo walks after you know his first full season. And rather than you know either continue with what you're trying to do with Carlo, whatever that was, or going back to Marco Silva, they appoint Rafa Benitez, who doesn't really move the needle either direction. Rafa's going to keep you where you are. Rafa's, at this point, not a manager who's going to make you any better or, you know, any worse. Now, admittedly, Everton are terrible at the moment, but there's a lot of factors in that. Two big injuries, one to Calvert-Lewin, one to Mina. Obviously, Decoury and Richarlison missed time. They're forced to play Michael Keane. Gilfie Sigurdsson hasn't been allowed to play all season for police investigations. Um... They just there's there's no aim, there's no vision, there's no plan, there's no direction to this club, and the fans want Rafa out, and and who do they want instead? That's my question. Who do you want instead? Who do you think is going to come in? I've seen Graham Potter's name turn, thrown around. Why would he go there when Brighton's a better situation? Why would he make that move? He's two and a half years into his Brighton time. He's molded that team into what he wants them to be. He's arguably got better players at Brighton. If you're picking a combined 11, you don't really have a goalkeeper. Lamptey's your right wing back. Dean you by a fraction over Cucurella, I would say. You'd go Godfrey, but you'd go Dunk and you'd go Webster. So that's your midfield. That's your, your defence, rather. In midfield, it's Basuma. And maybe Decoury, maybe Alan, whichever one. So it's one and one. But up front, you're definitely taking Trossard. You'd take Calvert-Lewin. Maybe you take Richarlison. You could argue it's probably 6-5 to Everton, maybe. It's 6-5 one way or another. But the difference is that the five for Brighton are better than the five for Everton. The guys that don't make it are better at Brighton than they are at Everton. And Brighton have a lot of young talent like Motor, like Mwepu, like Cucurella, who are there for the future. Uh, the young Ecuadorian kid they bought, Caceres, is it? Um, Carbonic, the other young left back. There's a lot of talent at Brighton. It's a lot easier to envisage Brighton getting better. You put Calvert-Lewin in the Brighton team. Casado, that's his name. Thank you, Guy. You put Calvert-Lewin in the Brighton team. That's a top six team right now. 
they'd have been top eight last season with Calvert-Lewin in the team. You know, they've got McAllister. There's a lot of good players at Brighton. There's not a lot of good players at Everton. There's two-thirds of a team, some okay depth, and not a lot else. And I don't know that Mishiri's going to want to continue to pump money in if he's going to fund part of the stadium. You're certainly not spending money well when you do have it, which, you know, might also give him pause for thought. But I think Rafa is a good manager, not a great manager. He was. He was at a time one of the best managers in the world. But football has moved on and he hasn't. Football has evolved and Rafa is still Rafa. Rafa is still the same guy he was from 2001 to 2009. He hasn't changed what he wants, how he sets his team up, anything like that. And he's been figured out. It's a similar situation to Mourinho. He was never as good as Mourinho, thus he is worse than Mourinho now. But Mourinho is not the same guy he was from 03 say, 2 until about 2012, 2013. When, when did he win the league at Real? That was the last great Mourinho year, when he won the league at Real. I know he won a league at Chelsea. I know he won Cups at United. He hasn't been the same guy since that title-winning season at Real. That was the last great Mourinho year. That was from Porto's uh, UEFA Cup win through to then. That was an incredible stretch. And he was the best manager in the world at that point, without question. But he's a shell of himself. Rafa was uh, maybe a top six or seven manager at his best. And he's a shell of himself now. So yes, you probably do want to move on from Rafa. But it doesn't matter who you appoint unless everything around him changes. Unless the structure changes, unless competent people are appointed unless an actual direction, a mandate for the future is put in place and strictly adhered to, Everton will go nowhere. They will go neither up nor down. They will just stay very much a bottom half, mid-table team. Because, let's be real, in the history of the Premier League, They've been that more than they've been a top four team, more than they've been a European team. This idea of Everton, aren't we? Let's get back to where we want to be. Where do you want, where we should be rather, where should you be? You had a great run in the 80s. You won a couple of titles before that. But you've, by and large, throughout your whole history, you've been a mid-table team. And more often than you've been a, a top four team, even in the days pre-top four, more often than you've been a team challenging for major honours, you've been a team in the bottom half. Institutional failure, top to bottom. We'll take a break. When we come back, we've got some questions to rattle through and we'll be done for the day. So I'll see you in a minute.
Right, welcome back. So, uh, it is Thursday. We've got some questions to get through. So, let's rattle through. Sandeep asks, Adama Traore has been linked. What's your thoughts? Too much of an individual, no end product. I don't see any possibility that he is somebody that Liverpool look at. Uh, Owen Hurley, according to your man Duncan Castles, Liverpool are in for a Ford this January and have a large budget. Apparently another speedster is on the cards, although personally I'd like a bigger Ford to help change things up as needed. Is he reliable? Duncan Castles is a weird one. He was really reliable on all things Mourinho for years. He was kind of Mourinho's go-to guy. On transfers, no, I don't think he is reliable. I could be wrong, but I don't think his track record is particularly good. I know he does a transfer window podcast, but I don't think the, tra- the track record is particularly good off it. Um, I I would like... you. Owen has mentioned Rafinha and Darwin Nunes. I would love either or both. Uh, in terms of this January, Luis Diaz could be a possibility. I think he ticks a lot of boxes, as long as you don't have to overpay for the, the jump in quality this season. Adiemi's one, obviously, that's been mentioned heavily from Salzburg. I like the idea of bringing in that bigger kind of number nine type. Though with the way Jota's playing, you know, maybe Klopp will look for more of a wide player. Um, I would go Darwin Nunes personally. You know, I think he's a, he'd be a great fit if you're not looking to spend massive money. I think 35, 40 probably gets him. I think he's got huge potential and levels to go up. If you're spending a bit more than that, yeah, Rafinha would be the one. But I don't know that Leeds can afford to lose him mid-season because I think they'd get absolutely, I think they'd get absolutely tonked on a regular basis. Um, Isaac Gilding, what are some underperforming regions or cities in terms of foot of producing football talent in the UK or anywhere? I think the city of Liverpool has underperformed in the last 30 years. Now, there's been some great players, don't get me wrong, but I do just think there's not enough volume. Some haven't reached their potential. Joey Barton, Jason Kumas, for different reasons, Kumas injuries, Barton, more along the lines of behavioural problems. There has been Fowler and Rooney and Owen and Gerrard and now Trent, obviously, and, you know, Curtis. But it's just for two clubs over that period of time, it just hasn't been quite as much. Manchester, up until recently, was underperforming. I think one of the big ones is is the kind of Newcastle, Sunderland, Middlesbrough area, which in the 80s and 90s was a real hotbed. I think that's died off a little bit. I think Yorkshire has struggled to produce players in the past 10 years or so. Now, I do think it's become it's because England has become more centralised to London. And if you look at a lot of the players, the great young players, most of them are the children of immigrants. And most of those immigrants have found themselves in London. So I think that's kind of why there's a disparity between the amount of talent coming out of London and everywhere else. Birmingham's another area that's kind of underperformed. There are a couple of of notable exceptions to that, but I, I, I kind of feel like London and more recently Manchester are carrying uh, a lot of the burden for producing young players. Um, 
if he wasn't a Pratt and didn't play for City, is Bernardo still for the most Jurgen Klopp-like player around? I think so. I think he is. I think he's the perfect midfielder for Klopp. If Klopp had him, for Fabinho and Thiago, I think that's the perfect Klopp midfield. I think it's probably the best midfield in Europe, and I think Liverpool would absolutely wipe the floor with basically everybody. I think Bernardo Silva is perfect for Klopp. Incredible on the ball, but an amazing work rate. And he's so good off the ball and such an intelligent player. Uh, DeLangstar, with Mane showing far better form this season, do you still think he has a few more years left him at the club? I thought it might be the sale of him and maybe one or two others to fund the replenishment in the squad. I still think he's the most likely of the front, the original front three to go. There's just been no mention of a contract extension for him. And I do think, I think if he'd had a good season last year, they would have sold him. So, yeah, I I don't know what Sadio is the honest answer. When he's playing like this, you want to keep him. But at the same time, you do look at his age. And if it comes down to a choice between him or Mo, you're obviously keeping Mo. You can't compare him and Bobby because there's just no real value in Bobby. Bobby's a tremendous player for Liverpool, but he doesn't really fit all that well at many other clubs. So there isn't a market for him. Whereas with Sadio, Sadio can go to basically any club and fit in. Um, so I think if you're selling one, it is Sadio. Uh, Del, do you honestly reckon we may have a chance to get either or both Luis Diaz and Rafinha in January? No chance of both. But I do think there's a there's more of a chance of Diaz than Rafinha in January. I think there's a decent chance of Diaz in January. If he's if he's seen as the right one. Um Roshan or 27, what's the deal with Saul this season? It seems like he hasn't really hit the ground running at Chelsea. We all know of his obvious quality and his heyday is arguably one of the top few midfielders in the world. Why do you think he hasn't kicked on? And um, would you take still take him at Liverpool? So to go backwards, yes, I would still take him at Liverpool. Why hasn't he kicked on? Chelsea haven't given him opportunities. What's he played? Four games? I think he's played 94 league minutes this season. He's played more league minutes for Atletico Madrid this season than Chelsea. Tuchel hasn't managed him well at all. And he hasn't allowed him to play through bad form. It's as simple as that. This is a midfielder who's been indoctrined in Diego Simeone for, well, a decade, really. And is now being asked to play a different system, a different style, slightly different role, and not being given opportunities to do so. So I think there's a lot of factors here. Um, AMK2889. Just finished listening to a podcast called The Rumor, which is about Cal Ripken Jr.'s consecutive games played. He holds a record in the Major League Baseball for most consecutive games played without missing one. It was sensational. It's about a situation in 1997 in which a Baltimore Orioles game was called off because some lighting in the stadium went out, and that caused a rumor that Cal requested a game get called off because he hurt his hand from getting in a fist fight with Kevin Kevin Costner and couldn't play, so that would have ended the streak. There was obviously a lot more to do, to, lot more to it than that, and I highly recommend it to anyone, even if you're not a fan of baseball or American sports. So it's called The Rumor. I'm sure you can find it on iTunes and Spotify. I'm going to give this one a listen. Also, it made me wonder if you've ever heard of some real 
corky and random rumors that start due to a game getting called off or maybe a funny rumor about a manager or player who fell out with each other the fans or maybe even the ownership of why a certain transfer didn't go through um so i don't know if this is true but there, there is a rumor that when alex ferguson was manager of st mirren he threw a cup of tea at a player and the player beat lumps out of him in the dressing room now i've never seen that confirmed but multiple people who aren't connected have told me that same story um there is one I can't share on Liverpool. I just can't share it. But there's one on United with regards to the broken fax machine. That The fax machine wasn't broken at all. They just flat out refused. They'd, they told De Gea they were going to let him go. They had agreed with De Gea that he could go to Real Madrid. They had another target in mind to bring in as a replacement. That deal fell through and they made up the thing about the broken fax machine. Um, As far as games being called off or anything, no, never anything like that. Um, There was a rumor about... I don't know if I can say this. There's a rumour about Arsene Wenger and a certain player at Arsenal during the latter years that was... I think it's true. I I can't... I was told this in like really strict confidence from someone who would be one of the few people who would know about this, so I can't really say too much. But basically there was a rumour about Wenger falling out with a player over something ridiculous, like something really, really minuscule and stupid because Wenger was under a lot of pressure, had become very sick of the way he was been treated at Arsenal from both the fans and the people above him. And basically, he fell out with a player over something really innocuous and it was kind of the beginning of the end for that player's time at Arsenal. Um, I'd just like to quickly say a very... Big thank you to the Langstar and Steve P, who uh, both listen to a lot of this podcast. The Langstar's top podcast on Spotify this year was the Two Footed Podcast. So thank you to, for that. Anyone else who um, who had that, you know, pop up in the top five? Neil Devlin, I think I was number two on his. Behind Joe Rogan, a little bit disappointed by that, but you know, you take what you get. Really, really pre- appreciative of everybody who listens to this podcast, whether you listen to every day or, you know, once a week or whatever. I really, really appreciate it. Um, Damien asks, going into 22-23, we keep Bobby, Jota, Mo, and Taki for the front three. Mane is sold and we have $100 million to spend on two new wingers. Who are you going for? Rafinha at about 45 and who? Um... I would go as high as 60 for Rafinha because I I just think he's sensational. The other one is interesting. I'd really hoped that Vinicius would not kick on at Real and that when they brought in Mbappe and Haaland, they might be willing to sell him. 
And I would say, I would have said him in that case, but he's having a sensational season. So he's not going to be available and certainly not at, you know, 40 to 45 million. I do really like Sulemana, who I've talked about before at Wren. He's very young. He's very raw. Yeah, guys mentioned Rodrigo at Real, super talented and definitely worth a look. Definitely worth consideration. I think I'd kick the tires on Hudson Adoy, who I quite like. I think there's a lot to come from him. I just don't think he's been all that well developed by Chelsea. Obviously, the Achilles injury held him back a bit, but still think he's a super talented player. I'd be tempted to go for number nine, but you know, you've already got Bobby, you've got Tacky, you've got Jota, who can all play through the middle. So my, my preference would be, you know, a Darwin Nunes, an Ivan Tony type. Um, but if we're going for just a winger, it'll be too soon for Neto coming back off the injury. Rafinha would definitely be one. The other. I mean. If Kingsley Coleman could stay fit. He would be worth consideration. This budget leaves me short of who I actually would want, which is Federico Chiesa. If you could get Rafinha for around 45, you might be able to do a deal with big add-ons for Chiesa, but it probably would still cost 70, 75. So that puts me over budget. Um, but he would be my, my first choice. Rafinha and Chiesa would be my first choice pair. I think I'd just go Harvey Barnes in that case. I think I'd go Rafinha and Barnes. I think Barnes is the closest thing you'll find to a Chiesa light. I think he would explode under Klopp. I really do. I think his directness, his ability to carry the ball, he's a good finisher. He's an intelligent player. I think he's got the capacity to become a very good presser. So I'd go Rafinha and Harvey Barnes. Um, I think... I think that's it for there. Andy the Red uh, didn't ask me this question directly, but asked it on Twitter. United spent $50 million on... Aaron Wan-Bissaka, how many other right-backs in the Premier League would you take over him? So I thought I'd do that for a bit of fun. Uh, Reese James and Cesar Azpilicueta from Chelsea. Walker and Joe Canseo from City. Trent. Soufal. Tomiyasu. I would take Semedo over him. Definitely Lamptey. Definitely Pereira. Definitely James Justin. I'd take Castanier. I'd take Emerson Royale. Maddie Cash. Livermento. And Max Ahrens. Is that 16? I think that's 16. So, yeah, I would take all of them over. Oh, and Kyle Walker-Peters, because 
he's a good defender and he's decent going forward. Whereas Wan Basak is an okay defender, great at one thing, 1v1 defending. Doesn't read the game well, poor positional sense, doesn't sweep a centre backs. I would take Kyle Walker Peters. Might be a little bit controversial on that one, but it's what I would do. So I would take 17 right backs over him. Uh, Stephen Smith um, asked the following couple of questions and queries. Could you explain what? Oh, so the Saul one, he's, he's basically asked a similar question, but he asks why he left Atletico. He said he, he, he said he was burnt out. And he wanted to play in a more stable position. Whereas for Simeone, he'd always just sort of used Saul here, there, and everywhere. He'd play him in midfield for 20 games, and then he'd launch him in at left back for a couple. Next thing, he'd be playing him left wing. He played him centre back. He played him right back. Played him off the right wing. Played him up front. He said he wanted a bit more stability, and he was a bit burnt out. In terms of why he left, it wasn't that Atletico were anxious to get rid of him that's a that's a misnomer um that's been made up by a moron on sky sports he asked to leave and simeone agreed to let him leave because he felt he owed it simeone himself has said this he owed it to saul to let him leave because saul had had massive offers massive offers to leave previously once to City, who ended up buying Rodri, at least once to United, and once to Bayern Munich. And Simeone convinced him to stay each of those times. And he felt he owed it to Saul. Now, the thing is, Saul can go back to Atletico Madrid in January or next summer and immediately be welcomed back in with open arms. I think he walks back in and he's a starter straight away. He had a bit of a disappointing season last year, obviously. But a lot of that, again, was on just Simeone moving him about and not giving him real rhythm. Tuchel has just managed him terribly this year. I would be very much in favour of him arriving at Liverpool. I think he would bring real balance to the team. Um, Also, with Rafinha links ramping up, could you possibly see him as a future false nine? Mo alternative and attacking number 10 thus making him multifunctional as well as an exceptional talent. As a false nine, no. But definitely both wings as a 10, and I think he can play as a right-sided eight. I think he's actually ideal. That role I mentioned for Bernardo Silva earlier on, I think Rafinha can play that role. He's just as good, if not better, on the ball. He works incredibly hard. I think Rafinha, you look at how Henderson played last night, basically as a right winger slash number 10. When Harvey Elliott was playing that role, basically a right winger slash number 10. Rafinha could play that role and absolutely excel, and he works hard enough to get through the defensive side of things. So Rafinha, to me, could play everywhere. And he doesn't need to be a backup nine, because Mo can be the nine, and Rafinha can play right wing instead of him. So... I, I'm all Rafinha for me is the is the signing I want for Liverpool. I, I just think he's he's so so good. Uh, we'll wrap up with the gossip and be done for the day. Barcelona are interested in signing Cesar Aspilicueta on a free because they have no money. Everton could sack Rafael Benitez or Marcel Brands by the end of the week. 
I mean, this is nonsense from Football Insider pretending to have knowledge of what's going on. Yes, of course they could sack them. But which one and who? When? What's happening? You don't know. You're just making something up. Uh, incoming interim manager Ralph Ranick is keen for Manchester United to make a summer move for Timo Werner. So the guy who won't be in charge wants them to sign a player he'd never get to manage. A player, by the way, who's a terrible fit for United. A terrible fit. They have, they have Marcus Rashford, who's a very similar but I think better player. Ranick will receive a... 10 million euro bonus if he convinces Erling Haaland to sign for United. That's not true. That's not true at all. Garbage. Absolute garbage. This idea that Ranić has some great relationship with Haaland is a myth. By the time Haaland went to to Salzburg, Ranić had no involvement with Salzburg. Red Bull had split the clubs and were no longer operating them side by side. So that is nonsense. Plus, United had Oli, who had a great personal relationship with both Haaland and his dad, and still couldn't get it done. Ranić will be given a transfer budget of up to £100 million to strengthen January. More tripe. Absolute tripe. They're not going to give a glorified caretaker manager £100 million to spend. Stupid. What if he goes and buys players the next manager doesn't want? Like, oh, they need a defensive midfielder. Fine, what type of defensive midfielder? Do you want a Rodri or an Ndidi? You know, it's nonsense. Absolute nonsense. Uh, RB Leipzig and France right back Nordi Mukieli is a target for Man United. Crap. Uh, Wolves have cut their asking price for Dama Traore. With Liverpool interested again. Football insider again. Nonsense. Chelsea are open to selling Hakim Ziyech and Timo Werner to Barcelona. Yet Barca have no money. Jorginho's agent says the 29-year-old has not held uh, talks with Chelsea over a contract. He did say he hoped it would happen soon. Uh, Ferran Torres is edging closer to a move to Barcelona. No, he's not. No, he's not, because Barca can't afford him. So it's nonsense. Leicester are planning a January move for Wolves forward Wang Hee Chan. Right, that's not happening in January. So again, more crap from Football Insider. Real Madrid are the preferred destination for Robert Lewandowski if he leaves Bayern Munich. This is from AS, which is basically a Real Madrid fanzine. Uh, Borussia Dortmund have entered the race to sign Darwin Nunes would be an ideal Erling Haaland replacement. Rangers have emerged as a surprise contender for Xavi Simmons and are considering a move. This is just, Rangers have a Dutch manager now, yada yada, not more, more nonsense. Xavi Simmons is going to have much better offer. He's not going to go to Scotland to play. Let's be serious here. It's one of the most... Highly touted midfield players in the world in his age group. West Ham are expected to make a move for Jesse Lingard and James Tarkovsky in January. Uh, Tarkovsky, I could see. Lingard, I can't. Aston Villa are not interested in signing Joe Gomez, says the Daily Mail. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, Even Perisic is considering a move to Tottenham. Don't really see that one being something that happens, to be honest. There's no place for him at Tottenham. And Eddie Nketiah has turned down a new contract offer from Arsenal. And that's it. That is the gossip. We do have two games tonight, folks. So make sure you get watching them. We have Tottenham versus Brentford at 7.30. And Manchester United versus Arsenal at 8.15. So should be two good games. Enjoy them. I'll speak to you tomorrow. Take care of yourselves. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. 
Sports Social Podcast Network.